was just looking this up because I had to look up uh, uh, British currency for the Kropotkin reading this week. Uh, oh yeah, I figured there, it out. There were some really good choice words in that. that right, reading. it yeah. was it was a tough read. Some parts of it injurious. I still don't know how to pronounce blankist, like <laughs> blankist, blankist. I don't fucking know. I think you did a good. I did job. the best I could. Yeah, if I mispronounce anything in the Kropotkin, don't fucking at me. I don't care. I do my best. (laughs) No one cares. Yeah, yeah, especially when you're getting that shit for free. Yeah, yeah. It's all old stuff. You're never going to need to say it correctly. Anyway. There's no living person, I'm convinced, who knows how to pronounce Blanquist or Blanquist or whatever. All right, so before we get into it too much, I have a statement that I would like to read from... Uh, something that happened last week while I wasn't around. Uh-oh. All right, I, I need to. All right, so let me get my papers in in order here. It's gonna have a, a lot of papers, documents. Okay, uh, this is no. That's it's my it's my manifesto. No, okay, I'm still working on that. Okay, no, here it is. Okay, all right. Last week on this podcast, my fellow co-hosts made a statement that I would like to distance myself from at this time and thereby clarify my position on the matter. In episode 28, titled, That's a Spicy Tomato, it was stated that, quote, Jerry is a piece of shit. He is really mean to Tom, and we are sympathetic to the feline cause. This was in reference to the American animated series of comedy short films created in 1940 by William Hanna and Joseph Barbera in which Tom, a cat, attempts to murder and consume Jerry, a mouse. While I do, in fact, cohabitate cohabitate with four cats, I emphatically and wholeheartedly support the one mouse gorilla resistance movement that Jerry has mounted against his imperialist feline oppressor. Like the... (laughs) Excuse me. Like the United States in Vietnam, Belgians in the Congo, and Protestants in Ireland, and indeed all wielders of inordinate and unjustifiable lethal force, Tom has no grounds upon which he can rightfully enact his murderous violence against the rodent proletariat. I stand with Jerry's Liberation Army and their quest to make a tiny arch-shaped hole in the baseboard of the wall of the nation-state so as to acquire the delicious cheese of freedom. Solidarité, fraternité, égalité, fromage. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> wow okay sorry thank you thank you for getting letting me get that off my chest i mean i don't really know what to say like yeah i, I think I, oh. I feel like if anything jerry <laughs> comes from the privileged petit bourgeois hence his small stature um yeah. well i like and, so it, and it, need for luxuries such as cheese while Tom is really just trying to protect his home turf. Well, so, I mean, no. Okay, because... It, Tom well, is in, the cop in this situation. <laughs> in research... Oh, man. In this re- has gotten in, more yeah. complicated because, than I anticipated. Okay, so in researching this topic for my statement, I watched one clip in which Jerry is literally out in the cold. Okay, it's snowing, and, he's, and he's, his teeth are chattering, and Tom is comfortable by a fire... Is this t- it's totally Dickensian, and he lives in a cheese shop in France, and so it says fromage on, on, the, on the sign, and Jerry sneaks in just to eat a little bit of cheese, and Tom does not try to stop the thief. He, in fact, just places things on top of the cheese that Jerry is like holding over his head so he's like quietly putting things on top of the cheese just to make it heavier to carry 
until it all falls down. This is called the contradiction of capital, right? It's, oh, it's Jesus like everything Christ. falls apart, right? And then all that he does is capture him and call his uh, his thought girlfriend. He's got the big bow on. Whoa. Yeah. And so she comes over. Throwing and a little he, sexism into your and, class first analysis, and, and I see. And Tom makes Jerry serve them, even blow on his soup to cool it down. That's the work of a capitalist. I guess I should admit at this point that I never even watched Tom and Jerry as a kid. And oh, really? uh, I just saw that takes it's on Twitter at some point that Jerry's a piece of shit. So well, the, I'm going to defer to your extensive knowledge on this. My, my experience was that Jerry was always the one that uh, escalated the level and extremity of the violence, you know, like, um, it, well, he's an accelerationist. Yeah. You know, yeah. He's yeah. a vanguard. But, uh, but and was always and in the end really successful. He never really got hurt. Like yeah. the whole like you know, Tom was the one that would get in all types of injurious situations. <laughs> I uh usually I do my homework for the pod because I like to be prepared. I was oh, yeah. always that student in class who like always did all the reading and always had something to say about it. I was the most annoying kid in your seminar. But this week I haven't done any homework because I have been so angry that I just threw myself into my aquariums. So that's all I've done for a week, except for a look at bad takes on Twitter about Liz and Bernie and just be furious since the debate. So that's pretty much where I'm at. What, what's got you so mad? <sighs> where do I begin? <laughs> I well, mean- I mean, like, I, I really, is, I, you know, I, I think the phrase mask off is way too overused now. Uh, I, I'm not even quite sure what we're hiding with that mask. I don't know what, what, what parts map onto that metaphor anymore, even. But the, the idea that, like, Bernie Sanders says that Warren couldn't be president or that a woman couldn't be president. Right. And then, like, the very next question that it's like the contradiction is so bad that even that audience laughs and we laughs and we know the audience of all so here we're talking debates. about the cnn debate yeah yeah, yeah yeah the audience of those debates are like people that are well connected like yeah. that's almost always the audience yeah they, right? don't they pay like 800 to a thousand dollars a ticket or something like i think that. it depends on the on the that was one of the other debates the but debate. either way yeah yeah but well, I, yeah. like they laugh right and then the well, the next question is uh how warren how did you feel when when Bernie, Bernie told that. you, yeah, I know. <laughs> like, no, no, not even a veneer of journalistic integrity anymore. I mean, there's a bit of it that's like really meta because CNN was the journalistic outlet that leaked the reported statement in the first place and then was essentially like working with the Warren campaign on the release of this smear, basically. Mm -hmm. Like, as far as anybody I know is looking at the situation. And then they hosted the debates and then they referred to their own article as fact. And then they had their commentator after the debate say, this is isn't a matter of he said she said this is documented fact and like, this is you know, the woman who said that i don't know why he bernie sanders just makes my skin crawl and, well, if anybody remembers a, that yeah, little and gem. she was a former clinton yeah aide yeah but to anderson cooper's credit he did say actually in fact this is a he said she said it was a private conversation with two people that are disagreeing about what was said in it it's un it's factually unverifiable and even in their own reporting one of the four accounts said it wasn't that he said a woman could never win it he said that trump would use her gender against her 
in his own like rhetoric, which well, is of course true. Yeah, and but, so this is I imagine it going down exactly that way. Yeah, Bernie saying you know being supportive of her the way that we have no reason to believe that he wouldn't be because he has been throughout their you know supposed friendship. Yeah, he tried to get her to run against Clinton in 2016. Yeah, and Th- so there, with- there's a story in the top of my Insta paper feed right now that the Bernie Sanders campaign has researched whether or not she can be vice president and treasury secretary at the same time. Like they've researched that. So it's like, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what they're here's talking the thing. about. You have two people. You have one person who has shown nothing but like integrity and loyalty to the truth and to justice and to his constituents. And you have another person with a very long history history of half-truths and whole lies, who was a Republican 30 years ago, back when Bernie Sanders beat the incumbent. And, you know, it's like that, that was also so disingenuous. I'm the only one who's beat an incumbent in in the last 30 years of anybody on the stage. You're a fucking Democrat in Massachusetts. If you lost against a Republican, then you suck. Like uh, there'd be political malfeasance. Yeah. 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 If you're going to compare Elizabeth Warren, a Democrat running in Massachusetts to Bernie Sanders, an independent running in like, you know, in different positions throughout his life, that's just an absurd comparison. Well, and the Republican that he unseated, it was the longest uninterrupted holding of a a seat by the Republican Party Mm -hmm. in history. It had been for a century it had been held by a Republican. I should say real quick, I misspoke earlier. I said incumbent. I meant Republican. Anyway. Yeah. And it's really infuriating the now the discourse that has grown up around this and, you know, um, hashtag believe women. I mean, it's just like and I, I feel like I am allowed to say this because I am a cis white woman and we're allowed to say whatever we want. <laughs> um, it is really embarrassing to me, like it as a as a feminist. And also, you know, a socialist, like it's, it's, it's hard for me to parse all of this, but I just think it's absurd that we're getting to a point where you can't acknowledge that a powerful woman has lied in the past and is very, very likely lying now without being, being called sexist or having internalized sexism or all of this bullshit. Like it's just, it's, it's just absurd to me that it's, it's frankly, it's embarrassing. Well, there is the practical upshot that we are learning a lot about like ancient symbology because every time somebody uses an emoji in context to calling out a powerful woman on her malfeasance, we understand the lore that connects that, you know, emoji to, you know, an ancient tradition of uh, association with, uh, you know, outright misogyny. So here we're talking about the snacks. No step on snack. You know, the Egyptians used a poop emoji to describe... (laughs) I don't, describe- I don't know where I'm going with that. But- <laughs> you, you know, the, the Irish have a myth about snakes. And uh, one misogynist who <laughs> drove them all into the sea. A, a Bernie bro whipped out his flute. <laughs> you know, I and I, I actually am after, like, talking about it with Mitch. Uh, shout out to Mitch on Twitter. And, like, I, I, Hi, my, my opinion isn't really changed. I am sympathetic to the idea that there may be some underlying sexism with the snake. I'm not convinced but i'm sympathetic to that idea what i do have a problem with with regards to snack is people all of these like extremely online posters replying to every single warren tweet with like 30 snakes like come on don't do that it's dumb and also right on the heel right on the eve of a caucus in which bernie will need liz supporters in those districts where you know there needs to be a second round like we will need her people to caucus for bernie because you know, I mean, there's bound to be at least some districts in Iowa where where it's just too close. So it's like, 
just stop alienating them, you know, stand up for your for for your values and your opinions. And I think it's absurd for anybody to feel like they have to apologize for Bernie on this. It is very obviously something that's been cooked up by Warren in combination with CNN. I mean, I just think it's absurd to to imagine that he ever said that to her. But the response to that is not spamming her with snake emojis and like calling her a cunt and, you know, like, just don't do that. Like, don't do that. Yeah. Ironic misogyny or racism is 99.999999. Actually, it's actually a hundred percent racism and misogyny. So (laughs) just don't do it. Don't do it. You know? And I say that as somebody who, you know, uh, at least liked a lot of stuff that had a lot of snakes in it. So, yeah. you know, I, some there's snakes some hypocrisy are good. in there, I'm I, sure. <laughs> and I have no problem with people tweeting the snake, but like, don't spam her mentions with it. It's just, it's just not a good look. I just want to defend, defend the snakes too, you know, snakes out there. <laughs> snakes rule. Snakes rule. They're very, very cool. And Crucial fun. part of the ecosystem. Yeah. For me, I I watched the whole thing as a ongoing information analysis around the question of is you is or is you ain't, which really is like the question with all representational politics, as far as I'm concerned, because you, you, you go ahead and you listen to a politician. We all know politicians like lie. That's their whole, that's one of the main stri- raison de tray. <laughs> yeah, it's quite literally like what they uh, are set up to do. And so the whole question about is you is or is you ain't is like an ongoing one. Like you're constantly trying to see like if people are legit. You know, like I remember I got really upset with Bernie Sanders when he didn't utilize the moment during the convention where it all came out that like the uh, party had it in for him the whole time. and mm-hmm. There was like all this chicanery going on and he didn't take up Jill Stein on her offer to just be the presidential candidate of the green party and and run with him and like split the party which is like i think you know the sooner that happens the better because we have this really crazy convoluted big tent party that's simultaneously trying to cater to the interests of the billionaire investor class and the day laborer which can't be done so that's going to be dysfunctional like in an enduring way until there's like anything you know different going on about that i think if trump hadn't been the nominee yeah. That might have gone differently. I yeah. mean, who's to say for sure? But I do think that because he was framed as and and very, you know, possibly was like this existential threat for that a lot we of people, could not yeah. be divided over. Yeah. I think that might be a big part of why Bernie, like, you know, went so hard for Clinton after it was clear he wasn't going to win the nomination. But yeah. Like, you know, uh, Barack Obama built the detainment camps that Trump is using to separate and detain children in cages and let them die. And, like, that was an acceleration of some bad shit in a way that maybe wouldn't have been accelerated if Hillary Clinton was, you know, president. I don't know where, where we would be in terms of war and peace on a whole bunch of other issues. Like, you know, I had my critiques of Clinton uh, then, but, like, I understand why Bernie Sanders wouldn't want to, you know, dash his whole political career of, like, you know, trying to work with the Democrats, like, as much as possible by, like, trying to, you know, rip the party in half. But ultimately, I think that, you know, figuring out how to solve that cognitive dissonance between the supposed constituents of the, you know, the Democratic uh, Party needs to fundamentally be done, you know, and we on this podcast are hoping that Bernie basically captures the Democratic Party and pulls it to the left in terms of not just uh, policy platforms, but, you know, um, utilizing class class consciousness and mobilization of uh, the masses of the people as a potential mechanism to bring about political and policy change. Yeah, 
I mean, at least one silver lining to that CNN. I don't know what you want to call it because it wasn't news or a debate, really. I don't know. Just like media moment was that Sanders raised like more money quicker than he ever has after, yeah. after that mm. debate. It was like they, they raised a, I don't even remember how much it was, but it was like record setting. Just people like hate donating. Yeah. <laughs> so, so just to finish the thought about the is you is or is you ain't, you know, this was a very you, you ain't, um, you know, moment for Elizabeth Warren, you know, because if I was Elizabeth Warren and I was trying to bring about the policies that I'm talking about, the big structural change, free call it, which for public universities for all, um, not for all, not for all, unfortunately, oh. but okay. But point is. She is more with Bernie than she is with any of the other candidates. And uh, in terms of, of that anymore, well, to be that's, honest. that's my point, at least yeah. ostensibly, like her, her, her political platform, what she is trying to motivate her base uh, support with is ostensibly a, an incredibly similar material like platform to the one that Bernie is championing. And if you had half of the support of someone who had very similar policy goals. And we were going into the first of what's going to be a contested primary of which all of the other candidates, two of which are doing better than you, or, or three of which I think are doing better than you in the polls, have very, shall we say, uh, opposed platforms in terms of material policy to the ones that you're purporting to have. Would you not want to, at the minimum, like cozy up to that politicians uh supporters or or, or uh voters like do, does she think she's gonna pull this off does she think I she's going know. to win the primary like by attacking bernie like it didn't make sense on its face except to say maybe the idea that elizabeth warren wasn't actually in this election to bring about you know big structural change in a progressive platform but was in fact there to undermine and try and sabotage Bernie's candidacy there, you know, like that's the question I look at all politics is like, I guess I'm really cynical and optimistic at the same time. You know, I'm trying to like hedge my bets and like try to understand where people are coming from because like, it doesn't make sense to me at all. If I was Liz Warren, that I would want to do this at this time. So, you know, there was one take I saw, which was, it's absurd to think that she would want this information to be front and center in the campaign so that she can become the target of all these sexist attacks. And and anybody who thinks that this is calculated on her part is, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. And to my mind, it's like, and also a lot of people were saying like, this is bl kind of blown up in her face, which should be evidence that she didn't manufacture this. To which my response is, she released a DNA test showing that she's not fucking Cherokee. This is not somebody with a great deal of political acumen. She's fucked up in the past and it's blown up in her face. There's no reason to think that this is any different than those times. And it also doesn't make any sense because, okay, one, the CNN article is all sourced anonymously by, but by people who say that they're with the Warren campaign, one. Two, they, uh, they uh, no commented on it for like a whole news cycle before kind of like tacit like just kind of a little bit saying like yeah that happened it was like the, the, none of these are things that you do if you did not intend this to happen or, was, or or even if you're like well i kind of interpreted it that way like none of this is well handled yeah at, at, the, she, at best and she was neck and neck with bernie until she backed off on medicare for all yep she was still hanging pretty good in the polls until she backed off on free call on free universal college tuition for state schools like she has this is not the first time that she would have made you know poor political calculus so there's like that's just to me 
that is not in any way evidence that this wasn't manufactured. If anything, it fits the Warren bill perfectly. Mm. That once again, she did something that she probably thought was really smart. I don't know who the fuck is running her campaign, but it seems to me like this was just another instance of, you know, her her or her handlers or whoever is running her campaign thinking this will get him. You know, will this will help us bring in moderates or this will help us, you know, convince some some Bernie supporters that he's a secret sexist. Like It's just... I just think it was a political misstep, which she's known for. Well, I mean, you can never, uh, I can, I can never think of a moment where any media class pundit or any kind of consultant has ever said, oh, you need to move to further to the left. Right. 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 right? And so like any, any of the, the cast offs that Warren is getting from the old Clinton campaign or Kamala or, you know, like any of the other ones that dropped out, which she is, Corey she's Booker picking now. them up. Yeah. yeah. Like they're all, they're all probably telling her to move to the right to, you know, pick up. Biden. Capture the moderate base. Yeah. yeah capture Buttigieg that moderate base. And Biden yeah. have them wrapped up. Yeah. Like nobody is going to leave Buttigieg and Biden yeah. for Warren just because she becomes more moderate. Well, the last thing I really wanted to say about it was how absolutely despicable i thought it was that cnn spent two hours after the debate who knows i turned it off after two hours i don't know how much longer they went on about it uh what did they say what did liz and and bernie say what did they say to each other tom steyer what did they say what did they say who knows anybody got a lip reader on on staff and then fucking less than 24 hours later it's like oh we found the audio because just just as the the news cycle is is turning toward something infinitely more substantial like all of the money that bernie racked up during the debate all of the endorsements that he's gotten in the last couple of days yeah and then cnn's like we found the audio yeah i bet you lost the audio on the fucking same mics that had just recorded the entire debate yeah it's absurd and also it wasn't a hot mic guys it was a live mic they weren't backstage everybody like there was no liz warren knew exactly what and this is another reason that i think it was just political calculus but shitty political calculus she knew exactly what she was doing she knew that she was miked she knew that people were going to spend all this time talking about it and she looked it was a bad look for her it was a bad look i wish bernie had kept his index finger tucked in when he talked to her but he didn't so it's anti-semitic to be mad at him for his hand gestures actually finger guns random finger guns like i i find it really endearing actually yeah Something that really dawned on me during watching the debate, though, is that I think the part of the appeal behind millennials, you know, affection for Bernie Sanders is, you know how like people say like old people still have like an inner child? Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like young people have like an inner cantankerous, angry old man who's like <laughs> looking back at, you know, our projected lifespans with regret and anger and just complete impatience with any bullshit. Yeah. That would also explain Biden's appeal with boomers because he is nothing but inner child. <laughs> <laughs> I, I feel the Bernie curmudgeon in me well up when I'm at the deli counter. Yeah, he does. It's yeah, true. Yeah. It's like, like, why, this, why are we what waiting? is this pastrami? They, this they, is they, terrible. They have a number counter system. I have a ticket and yet no one is following it. No one else has a ticket. They're just <laughs> randomly picking people sitting at the deli counter. It drives me nuts. <laughs> Absolutely bonkers. <sighs> So I uh, I had the the pleasure of interviewing Shuja Hader. He's a a writer at large at the Outline, and uh, we talked about a couple things. The last month or so, he's had some pieces about culture and presidential politics, and um, our favorite website, Twitter dot com. So love that website. <laughs> yeah. So here's David's interview with Shuja Hader. 
So uh, I'm uh, sitting here with a Shuja hater over the internet. Um, Shuja is a, a writer at large for The Outline and editor of Viewpoint Magazine, a militant research collective. Shuja, how are you doing? Good. How about you, David? Good. Um, it's cool that we're pretending like we didn't just ask each other that uh, <laughs> off mic. I don't, I don't remember that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's all it's the podcasting magic. <laughs> So I asked you because uh, on because uh, you can write about just about anything in like this really entertaining way. You know, you're, you're definitely one of my my favorite writers. And uh, what you wrote in Popula in 2018 is why I can't stop listening to Bobby Bear now. Oh, um, so well, then my work is done. Yeah, yeah. Look at what you've done. Me. <laughs> Wrecked me. Um, <laughs> But really, I want to talk about like the last three things that you've written um, at yeah. the outline, and they all sort of like revolve around the relationship of like culture and opinion, and mostly presidents' ability to shape those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you had like in order, like a piece about um, Obama's end of the year lists, and then mm-hmm. all the reactions to the Soleimani assassination, and then your latest with a great title for whom the ratio tolls. Um, trolls. You're right, trolls. trolls, right, yeah. <laughs> Who, for whom the ratio trolls. Man, uh, uh, God, it's, it's got layers. Um, uh, has a lot to say about how uh, Twitter's new commenting feature will impact uh, the capital D discourse. Uh, right. So, yeah, so let's start there. Um, sure. You wrote that uh, the changes seem to be targeted at higher profile users. What, so, like, what... What are those changes, and why do would we assume that that's that's who benefits from them? Right. Well, I'm, I mean, Twitter has been getting a lot of pressure for a long time uh, about harassment on its platforms, which is often, you know, just directed at ordinary people like you and me. Uh, I guess I have a lot of followers, so uh, I'm I'm a little more uh, I'm on a different tier. But um, people, ordinary civilians, who become the target of organized harassment from neo-Nazis or from like men's rights activists, misogynists or whatever. And justly, Twitter has been asked to, you know, be accountable for that. And it's kind of, the company is kind of pitching its newest policies around that issue, which is that it's now allowing you to determine who gets to reply to a tweet before you post it. Uh, There's different levels and it ranges from just people uh, who follow you to no one at all. So they're describing this as a way of dealing with that kind of problem. But if you think about how the dynamics of of Twitter and particularly interaction on Twitter work, uh, it's not something that has any utility for anyone except really high profile users. People, you know, they're the the examples that that. Uh, the Twitter's representatives gave when announcing it was people like Elon Musk and Bill Gates. Uh, people who <laughs> yeah. are, you know, they have the expectation they're going to get a lot of replies. A lot of uh, those replies are probably going to be critical. Some of them are going to be, I don't I don't want to use a word like abusive because it's really not any threat to those guys if someone is a little rude to them on Twitter. But, you know, they're going to run the gamut. Some of them are going to be worshipful. But uh, what Twitter wants to do is basically prevent the citizenry from having the capacity to respond to uh, the aristocracy, which on Twitter is embodied by people like that, people who have verified accounts uh, and who have huge follower uh, lists. And the point that I was making in, in, the, in the article 
is that there's a tendency when we look at social media or the internet in general to kind of mistake the map for the territory, to invoke uh, a classic metaphor used about, about information technology. What, what happens on the internet is a representation of real dynamics and real hierarchies that exist in society, in real life, in, you know, whatever you want to call it, IRL, the meat space. And the reason that people like Elon Musk are the target of widespread criticism is because they have a lot of power and they deserve it, you know? So Twitter is introducing these functions that are basically going to insulate people like that from having to engage with a response from the public. It's not really going to do much for uh, ordinary people who may face hostility or, or harassment. Right, because like I can understand why it could like help everyone avoid harassment because you just like turn every tweet into a statement, right? You like turn off right. comments for everything. But if the if like kind of the I don't want to say the whole point, but like a big point of Twitter is to like get attention yeah. to you, right? And so like if you're going to turn off uh, a big part of the interaction with Twitter, like how are you going to grow a follower base? And so, like, people who, normal people, like civilians, as you call them, right, like, aren't going to, uh, are probably not going to want to turn that stuff off. Well, if you and, use Twitter as an extension of your social life, yeah. and you expect to be able to interact with people you know, uh, then this is this inhibits that. It doesn't right. protect you from people who are trying to, to locate targets or, or uh, victims. It basically just inhibits your ability to react to one another, which is defeating the purpose of what, what's supposed to be called social media. I mean, the question of, of, like you point out, that a lot of the idea is that Twitter has a potential to allow anyone to speak in public and for that public to grow based on uh, any individual statement. And this is there. I, I think that like I have maybe a heightened skepticism about this than than some of the people who want to see it as a. Uh, uh, this beautiful democratic kind of field of opportunity uh, because virality <laughs> uh, and, and so on, like that's, that's also a source of vulnerability. If you're a yeah. regular person who has uh, let's say, you know, things go viral sometimes because people are making fun of them or people are uh, in, insulting somebody or whatever. If you're a person who in, in your real life, has negligible uh, power or influence, and you become the target of widespread invective in this way, it's going to be unpleasant. And in my opinion, it's not reasonable. You know, I think that that the mistake that people make when, I mean, that, that there is this promise to social media that it has a flattening effect where the the elites of society have to be on the same level as the rest of us, and that means that we can confront them. That's true, but it also has this danger that we mistake each other for those types of elites and treat the same kind of anti-authoritarian impulse that we subjected against one another. That's a, a real danger, I think, that it requires being attuned to those power dynamics and those real social relations, uh, yeah, which no, I, I think I, are easily forgotten. Sorry, go ahead. No, yeah, yeah, no, I, I completely agree with that. You say towards the end that, like, social hierarchies can be exposed but also hidden yeah. uh, online. And the, and what that makes me think of, like, you know, if, if, you know, like someone who is, like, just learning all of the vocabulary of social justice or politics, like, 
you know, wielding it in a goofy way. And then like, if someone like quote tweets it and and says like, you know, look at this social justice warrior saying something stupid. Right. And, And then like, everyone dogpiles on that person. Right. And, and then like, I, I, I don't know, some asshole at the Atlantic writes a 6,000 word article about how this is about like fragility and millennials or whatever. I don't know. You just, there's probably algorithms that write those articles by now. Totally. But, I mean, I gave a, a relatively frivolous example uh, in the piece because it happened to be recent, but it's something that you see all the time is that someone's trying to prove a point about some, something they're arguing is a dominant social pattern or a trend. And in order to prove it, they'll just cite a tweet by someone who has like six followers and no profile picture, you know, like, and that's supposed to demonstrate that this is a prevailing mode of thought in contemporary life or something, which, you know, is, is obvious bullshit. If you, you know, scratch the surface, but it's so easily spun into, you know, something that looks like evidence. It looks like proof. And for someone as, corrupt as anyone with an op-ed column is it's a beautiful golden opportunity uh you know to spread more bullshit right because you can is i mean part of the part part of the thing of twitter that makes it a public space where as you said like anyone can like yell at bill gates and elon musk yeah. uh right it also makes it like um like a man on the street opportunity where you don't even have to interview yeah. anyone. You just did a, a Twitter search for, uh, you know, I, I don't know, Soleimani and the word like uh, deserved it. Right. And then you, <laughs> and, then, and then you just like get like, a, you just like, you can pick your favorite. Yeah. And, and it's just, it's perfect for, for whatever Rob Dreher wants to uh, argue. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I think there's, I don't know what the exact origin of it, but there there are these like canonical rules of the internet. You know what I'm talking about? Sometimes these are, and they're, they're numbered. These, I mean, you know, I think these rules emerge from like forums and, and message boards and news groups and so on. The rule number one, I believe is there is porn of it. You know what right. you familiar with that? Yes, I, I absolutely <laughs> am. In fact, right. one time in uh, undergrad, we had a party where we all tried to break it. <laughs> or like you it's rule I yeah. think it's rule 30 it's rule 30 you to refute the rule okay so it's not rule number one no no it's it, uh, yeah yeah it's rule 34 yeah and if 34, you, right, right now if you if you google rule 34 <laughs> the um the uh only picture that shows up like on the right hand side that gives you the quick definition uh, has a, um, it looks like a Rio MP3 player um, getting like bukkakeed or something. It's just like all these different ports that all these different wires that are trying to get into it. And it has like a, a like a startled anime face. Right. So, well, that's yeah. what I always think of when I, when I see that type of uh, maneuver in, in an op-ed column or something, which is like, yeah, no shit. You found someone to express that opinion you could also probably find a porn scene that refers to it, you know, because it's the internet and that'll be there, you know? Right. Uh, it's not a, it's not indicative of anything about society except that it's big, you know, and that, and that there's a lot going on. Yeah. Yeah. And you could just like find someone, yeah. Ar- arguing that, you know, like a, as maybe, you know, like contra one of your pieces about like, you don't have to follow the directions when baking. Uh <laughs> Right. Oh, yeah. yes, you, absolutely you, can, you yes. could have cited one of those, you know. <laughs> uh, right. 
let's actually um, talk about now that we're um, we're on like I guess talking about uh, um, uh, opinions and being mm-hmm. able to find whichever one you want. Barack Obama's opinions. Yeah, he since two thousand nine, as you say, like he um, he's been coming up with these like lists of things that he likes, and yeah. they're and they're probably they're probably cribbed from like. The you know, like the uh, like his music is probably cribbed, cribbed as you say from like Spotify's top <laughs> one hundred for people over forty or something, <laughs> right? Yeah. It was like, what, but I think it's like weirdly masturbatory, like literally masturbatory. Yeah. When you well, like look closer at some of his stuff, do you want to start there? Yeah, I mean, the first thing I, I as you raise the point of where are these lists coming from. And I don't think they're just coming from, uh, you know, what uh, Malia's dad does in his leisure time. You know, uh, <laughs> I think that he's got a, you know, a staff. He's got a people who who do this this work for him of managing his public image. Uh, right. And I think this is one of the things that they have set themselves to doing. And I I don't know this, and I I can't access this information because I'm not the type of like reporter who like knows people in D.C. or whatever who I can call up and ask for quotes on background or whatever. But I mean, look, let's say you're a, uh, a critic and your, your full-time job is you're a cultural critic and you write for magazines about all of the culture and whatever medium is your beat has come out that year. Putting a list like this together at the end of the year, like that's hard. You start months in advance. You've got to keep a list going all year. Uh, you know, it, it's a major task that like yeah. whole staffs or people at magazines have to work on for a long time. Yeah, because you can't like contradict yourself or like yeah. go and or 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 even worse, like be predictable in the way that like right. you know like, everyone says the same. You know, says like the you know like their favorite album was you know a uh, big thief or whatever. Like you, <laughs> that's not you know like that, that's not yeah. that's not going to drive the clicks or you're going to get bored. Getting get boring, you're in danger of getting boring uh and yeah like, a, com- say, like a comparable obama, phenomenon sorry go ahead well obama's a brand right he's like more yeah. and, you know like he's retired as president and well actually while he was president too right he's a, he's a brand and as you say as you just said like he has a yeah. a, a staff that helped manage the brand which is really what we're talking about here not an individual person and what they like it's yeah. manufacturing a a brand and a, and a and a collection of things that you can identify with. Right. What I was going to say is that is that Barack Obama's lists are very comparable to something that that Darcy Wilder wrote about at the outline, which was uh, Kendall Jenner being photographed reading all of these kinds of like hip new alt lit books, uh, yeah. including Darcy's own book. Which you know, she's not like just like i don't know reading n plus one or something and like <laughs> figuring out what, what like the most cutting edge new literature is she's literally and I, I think you know we've actually heard from the person who does this for her one her her agent or something uh you know chooses the books that she's going to be seen reading she's like and it's the same phenomenon. <laughs> yeah yeah it's the exact same phenomenon uh with with barack obama that he's uh managing his public image in this way and this contributes to his image which he's cultivated. And I, I want to like make clear, like I, I'm not arguing that this is totally fraudulent and that like Barack Obama is illiterate. He's, a, he's very literate. He wrote a book, you know, he wrote two books. I mean, he wrote one book. The other book probably was also written by committee, but 
obviously he's probably the smartest guy who's been president in our lifetimes. Uh, he was a professor, but that's not, none of that is to say that, that this isn't a very controlled media operation, which it definitely is. Uh, and he's made that into his trademark. Yeah. And I, I think it's actually, it's interesting that it sort of like folds back in on itself because like he like both his power and his taste kind of like uh, re- mutually reinforce each other right because like obama's sway over liberals and like his popularity was like because he flaunted his taste so much you could argue right and like how yeah, well he was very and how persuasive. good he was as a orator yeah. right because like w- like what what you wrote where like Bush was an idiot redneck, but Obama, the constitutional law professor who spent an hour, an hour reading every day and knew Beyonce personally, right? (laughs) Like you'll give him access to uh, a fleet of killer flying robots, but yeah, so you let him do more stuff. Right. During, during the Obama administration, there was this idea that it was okay to expand the legal powers of the executive office of the United States government to unreasonable proportions because the guy who was in charge was so fucking cool and charismatic and smart that we trust him. You know, like, uh, that's, that's Obama there. That's our boy. We trust him. And it's okay to give him all of these expanded powers to, you know, do extrajudicial assassinations with flying robots, you know? And yeah, because he listens to Ockerville River, you know? Exactly, so like, yeah, like cool. you know, <laughs> yeah, he's like, he's, you know, we can trust him with this. And the thing is, one, no, we can't trust anybody with that amount of power. Two, that power is not his forever. And now Trump has it. I mean, yeah. this is the, this is the, this is the thing that I think was really underreported on was that even even after Trump won the election and Obama knew that he was handing over the keys, he did nothing to dial back that power. He, in fact, proceeded to expand it. The power of and surveillance. And Democrats citizens. have continued to do that, too. Right. Yes. Like they keep like they gave him a whole new branch of the military. <laughs> they did. Uh, I mean, the idea of the person holding the office as being the extent of what that office represents there's a there's a serious danger to that. And, and it's really, you know, the job of the media not to be taken in by it. And these lists are a perfect example of everybody in the media just falling over themselves to swoon over it. Uh, you know, I, I saw so many places, I mentioned this in the piece, I saw so many places that were reporting on the release of Obama's list that were all like, and would you believe his list overlaps with our list that we put out yeah. of our favorite hours at the end of the year? And it's like, Motherfucker, where do you think he like his staff got the entries in his list? Like they were checking everybody else's to make sure they overlapped. I mean, yeah. of course it overlaps. Yeah, it was like, oh wow, how did Barack Obama find the Irishman? Right, <laughs> like, like of course. <laughs> yeah, know, just like, like everything wow. all of you were talking about, all you know. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah. Yeah, you just imagine him like going. You know, he has his own independent like uh, v- uh, VHS uh, he's store. He's digging deep, he in, you know. Through. Yeah, yeah. Oh no, but, yeah. Uh, he's absolutely digging through the bins. You know, he's got a he's got a store he goes to. You know, I mean, I don't know if this is like people are actually having this this myth in in detail, but that's that's the way that that people think about it. I mean, it's it's really uh, credulous, you know. Yeah. Uh, to imagine that there's something about it that's not carefully engineered. And I mean, the other thing, you know, is that is that uh, the comparison that people bring up a lot to obviously the current president who, like, make no mistake, like, 
the 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 comparison is is very stark. You know, we just came out from having this very cultured former professor who you know gave great speeches and all of that, being the president to this utter buffoon. And you know, I think that people overestimate or overstate Bush being dumb or whatever. I mean, this is a guy who came from extreme privilege and was he he has a certain you know facility with kind of moving through the halls of power and he surrounded yeah, himself with, with those types of people. I think people overstate that. It's not overstated with Trump. I mean, obviously the guy is, is a buffoon and an idiot and, you know, couldn't solve the, the daily jumble in the newspaper or, you know, <laughs> the just, I mean, you know, that that's, that's certainly true. And Obama is certainly above average in terms of his, you know, literary acumen or whatever. So the comparison is, is astonishing, but People are very eager to point out, you know, like, oh, I bet Trump's never read a book or whatever, uh, which, you know, for one thing, that's not the point. That's, you know, that's not that's not what it's what's at issue with the holder of, of that office. For another thing, I, I you know, and I mentioned this in, in the article that people did point out that whenever Trump talks about a book, he does recommend books on his Twitter feed. Sometimes they're exclusively books that are like favorable to him and about yeah, like right, how yeah. he's under attack from he's he's being persecuted by the democrats and russia gate is fake and all of that which fair enough that is funny and like yeah. it is like ridiculous but look at obama's list for one thing he put on the movie that he himself he and his wife produced on netflix american factory you know like he put his own movie on there you know? <laughs> uh for another thing is he included like a few of his favorite TV shows. And one of them literally, you know, has a scene where the, the main character jerks off while watching him give a speech. The thing is, you get, you gotta, you know, you can observe these differences in their personalities, but that kind of shows you that like the person holding that office is, is granted this kind of obscene power that is probably going to go hand in hand with that kind of narcissism, you know, and no matter how uh, charismatic he is as a speaker or just as a personality, that aspect is going to be there, you know, and, and, and if there's any role for, for the press, it's to be able to point that out in a, in an objective way. Yeah. And it's, I, I think maybe even worse than promoting books and TV shows that you either made or are favorable to you. Yeah. Are, you know, it's over, the word gaslighting is overused, but it's like you say, as you say, like at the very top of his list of favorite books is The Age of Surveillance Capitalism by <laughs> yeah. Shana Zuboff, which is like about how under Obama, the NSA uh, started the prison, you know, started the prism program and yeah. he's got this all like, uh, under surveillance, and it's like that's so strange that you're like, yes, that is a very interesting critique of the thing that I had complete control over. <laughs> it's like it's so wild that like it, that it almost feels like he's taking a victory lap or something. Like, yeah, that happened. <laughs> like, I don't One know. Of the things Zuboff points at uh, in her book is is that there was this kind of I think she used the phrase revolving door to describe the Obama administration and the uh, the staffs of uh, Google and Facebook and corporations like that in the tech industry, which, uh, you know, you, you bring up the prison program, prison program, uh, which was the, the, the surveillance program that Edward Snowden publicized in which 
these major tech corporations, telecom corporations, were making arrangements with intelligence agencies in the government to just hand over data that they collected from consumers. You know, you, you can't come up with a more concise embodiment of the idea of surveillance capitalism than that program that was developed and enacted under the Obama administration. It's farcical uh, for him to be recommending a book that studies and offers a robust criticism of of that tendency uh, in politics. Ah, man. The people we let be president. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you so much. This has been a bunch of fun. My pleasure. Yeah. Um, uh, You can... uh, Always catch uh, Shuja's work at The Outline, where he is writer at large. And uh, um, check out his, uh, his back catalog of everything else he's written, because it's all, it's all golden. All right. <laughs> Thank uh, uh, thanks a lot. Thanks, David. So that was great. Thanks, David, for doing the interview. And where can folks follow Shuja on the wonderful website, twitter.com? Shuja X Hater. That's S-H-U-J-A-X. H-A-I-D-E-R. And uh, yeah, he, he's good dude is so hilarious. He really he, is. I, a, I love his, 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 he is one of my favorite Twitter.com accounts, I must say. Yeah. And, and, his, and his writing is, is just as good. I, I don't know how he keeps up that, that kind of quality. It's exhausting. So did you guys hear about uh, how Virginia is currently in a state of emergency? I saw a couple of headlines about it, but I think that's it. Well, uh, apparently Ralph Northam, the um, governor of Virginia, has uh, declared a state of emergency ahead of a gun control protest rally against gun control and actually some people for gun control that will descend on the Capitol on Monday. Monday, Martin Luther King Day, uh, the oh, 20th God. of uh, January. Gross. Yeah. And so there's a whole bunch of people who are uh, really upset about the gun control laws that are being put into action in Virginia. And uh, they've already, I think, arrested, I think, five suspected or alleged white nationalist extremists or whatever planning like violence. Um, I think two of them were trying to come in from Canada. And then uh, I think another three were arrested like in Virginia, like yesterday or something like that. Damn it, Canada. We got enough of our own white supremacists. You keep yours up there. We <laughs> they're not sending their best. They're not sending their best. <laughs> Chris, do you know much about the actual um, gun legislation that either has been or is going to be passed? Because so, I haven't. I, I have it up right here. Awesome. Oh, nice. Yeah, please. Right. The measures limit purchases of handguns to one each month. <laughs> <gasps> My God. So, uh, yeah, tw- 12, 12 gun a year, handgun a year uh, allowance. Why don't we just maximum. tear up the Constitution, you know? <laughs> I give all of my nieces and nephews a handgun for every night of Hanukkah. <laughs> how am I, how, I'm How's gonna he going to start... get 47 <laughs> handguns? It's 47 a multiple of eight? Uh, no, it's no, not. It's not. But <laughs> the, the, the extra one's for you. Yeah. All right. There you go. It requires the gun buyer submit to background checks. Nice. And allow local governments to ban guns in parks and public buildings. Seems reasonable. And so a a friend of ours, the family member of theirs, received a letter from the NRA. This person is uh, a member of the NRA. And but not like one of those hardcore members just, you know, happens to be. 
Um, which interesting side note, like my folks got signed up to be in the NRA with their uh, like their their shooting range, like a gun club. They just like automatically signed them and up. they can't get out of it. Like they can't figure out how to get out of the NRA. But anyway, so this was the letter that this person received from the NRA. And it, imagine like a Facebook post with like a post with weird caps and like multiple unexplained commas and exclamation points because that's exactly how this letter reads lots of like underlining and bold and capital letters when someone hits you and attacks your freedoms you fight back and right now hundreds of gun-hating politicians judges and media elites are doing everything in their power to destroy your freedoms they're attacking your freedoms in the courts they're attacking in cities and small towns across america they're attacking in the states the media and especially now in congress Make no mistake, the battle lines are drawn. Freedom's enemies are on the march, and they're promising to fight on, bold underlined, and never surrender, bold underlined, <laughs> until they tear the heart out of our Second Amendment rights. The Second so, Amendment is a is like a tiny baby bear, <laughs> and they're just gonna like <laughs> fucking take their claws, their Democrat claws, and just like <laughs> shove it right into the little baby's chest and rip out its beating heart. <laughs> And I know, like, this is not surprising or anything, but it is still very disturbing how much the rhetoric is about, like, an actual, like, violent battle. And so um, then there's, like, a thing that, you know, is about all of the things that the NRA is doing for you, blah, 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 fighting anti-gun billionaires, (laughs) all the anti-gun billionaires. And but then there's this survey that they send that they're asking you to fill out. And um, this shit is wild, particularly one of the questions. Uh, this is number eight. Should NRA direct critical resources towards stopping anti-gun billionaires who are spending millions of dollars to destroy your Second Amendment freedom in states around the country? That's not a loaded question. <laughs> like, yes, no, and no opinion. I wonder how many people have no opinion on that question. Um, I, I, is, they're, they're like so hilariously loaded that I don't even really understand what the purpose of it is. Like I don't yeah. know, like I don't know what what persuasion tactic what data I don't like. I, this is just to be able to like claim some survey when it's like yeah ninety nine percent of uh, people like support Trump's like attack on the fake media you know because like it's just one of those things that you like click you know and it's say, just like, to rile yes. people up yeah Very it's just to mad. rile people up and and it makes it you know interactive <laughs> it, it it harnesses a lot of what makes social media engaging through its interactivity and just puts it on paper so that boomers. Like, yeah. understand it. Your ability to buy a gun without a background check. Shot in the head. <laughs> <laughs> Your ability to buy multiple handguns per month. Curb stomped at gunpoint. <laughs> uh, yeah. I feel bad for all the Virginians that now won't be able to get, like, those nice grill marks with their Glock in the park, you know? Like, they're, you know, yeah. grilling, out, <laughs> grilling up a, a, a red juicy steak, and then you want to get those nice grill marks, so you just, like, shoot into the ground, you know, yeah, like, get, a bunch of times. Yeah, get real hot. hot. Yeah, right on. But while we're on the topic of gun control, I've been uh, recently going down a bit of a rabbit hole on 3D p- uh, printed armament Twitter, which is uh, really crazy, because <laughs> they are making advances in... DIY gunsmithing that are like breathtaking and going really, really fast. So I, you guys know, I'm like by no means anti-gun yeah, or anti, yeah. you know, Karl Marx himself said the proletariat must never be disarmed. Um, I went shooting but, last week, but three, like 3d printer guns. Yeah. 
freaks me out quite a bit. Yeah, uh, that mean, that makes me very uncomfortable. So I talked about my friend uh, in previous episodes that had taken a little remote control car and made it like drivable uh, with a web app on any, you know, Chrome browser through, you know, the, the cell phone network. And then he, he made a larger Power Wheels version. And then he made a tripod that was using like lathe uh, axes to control a turret to be able to uh, track like little tiny toy drones and shoot them out of the sky with a nerf gun but you could mount something else to it well now he is taking up working on advancing 3d printed guns and he and a bunch the greatest of people, minds of our generation yeah, he and a bunch of people uh, out fine. there are putting out some open source diy gunsmithy instructables out there and it's pretty crazy like they had uh originally like the the first gun was popularized by this dude cody who I think went down for like having sex with a minor or something oh, during like a some, some type of this ain't it, chief. Yeah, some type of potential sting operation. I'm not really sure, but like I think he actually did do it. I'm not. I don't know. No comment. I guess on that. Uh, <laughs> allegedly, but, allegedly. Yeah, yeah, we'll just say allegedly he he did that. Um, but, hold off on the free Cody T-shirts. Yeah, but but he he his whole point and he was like pretty articulate on a bunch of uh, podcasts that were interviewing him about it was that he was trying to make like more of like a philosophical point about how you can't make data or like geometry like illegal which is like what fundamentally like 3d gun printed plans are it's really just a 3d shape and you with a printer can do what you want with it and so they have like i think the materials they're using are like you know some type of copolymers mixed with like carbon fiber so that it's like really tensilely strong but they made basically a, a plastic version of an ak that only had like a fraction of the amount of metal that it typically needs and like everything else was 3d printed using these fused deposition uh, modeling systems and they basically have a semi-automatic like submachine gun and the hardest thing for people to make at home is the barrels because right because yeah. they were exploding apart and, yeah yeah and you have to get really really uh specific types of metal and then you have to put rifling in them and so typically you need like specialty tooling to be able to make the rifling but now people have figured out how to use chemical etching so that they basically like print a solid uh cylinder with like a helix on the outside for the rifling pattern they want and they hook up a pump on either side of the steel tube and they push like an acid solution through the print so that it runs into the channels that are going to etch away the rifling and they basically can put rifling into like tube steel that you can't legally ban anywhere <laughs> you know so people, watch me <laughs> like people for example in australia can't get guns anymore like at least you know it's much much more controlled yeah now, in the uk and yeah you know, yeah now they can now they can make the guns at home essentially and uh allegedly parody <laughs> parody yeah, it's an interesting thing you know uh, i personally think that like I'd, I'd be interested to see where people draw the line as to where it becomes illegal exactly you know, if you were to have a 3D file on your computer that was a certain geometry that could be a gun part, is that a crime? Is printing it out with the intention of putting it into a gun a crime? Is fully assembling a gun that you've you've made a crime? Like, I'm always interested in, like, where exactly do people make the arbitrary, like, slice in the, uh, you know, videotape as to say, okay, now you've, now now it's illegal, now you've done this thing. Yeah. But, but, but yeah, it, it's pretty crazy. So, people are uh, making more and more functional... DIY firearms and can't really put that genie back in the bottle. 
I no, guess you could try no, and like can't. ban oh materials or the ability to own a 3D printer or something. I think this wouldn't disturb me quite so much if we didn't know for a fact that white supremacists are organizing incredibly violent militias all across the country and apparently in Canada too with the notion of starting a race war so that they can destroy and then rebuild society in their own image. Like if we didn't have that phenomenon, yeah. this probably wouldn't bother me quite so much. But the idea that like... Nazi engineers are going to CAD <laughs> and like designing submachine guns well, is not, uh, I don't, I don't find a great deal of, um, comfort in that. Well, I want to point out that my friend isn't a Nazi. Oh, well, and, no, like, of course you know, not. And, and well, that, and your friend, okay, here yeah. we go. You're, here's where the, here's where you draw the line. Your yeah, friend's yeah. allowed to do that. And well, Nazis, we have to root them out and send them to the guillotine. <laughs> and that's, now we don't have to worry about what guns are legal or illegal. It's just illegal to be a Nazi instead. Yeah, because I think that, you know, guns, this technology is like, you know, amoral. Ultimately, you know, what people do with technology is like whether or not it has a a horrible or, you know, liberatory or, you know, a compassionate effect on society. Gun control laws really get down into the nitty gritty, right? And if you can functionally make your own armaments with, you know, perfectly legal standard materials, then I don't know how you're actually going to legislate gun control it seems to be fundamentally broken like you could control bullets though like that would be probably where they would go that's actually in this nra questionnaire do you want to do you want to have a background check done every single time you want to buy ammunition which uh, every single time oh Oh my my god yeah i I mean it's a uh it's but even ammunition's a lot easier to make than guns are well right? yeah i mean i don't know i've watched preppers it. i've seen them do yeah, it yeah yeah oh yeah there's, there's new episodes of preppers i know i watched them while you were uh, gone oh, yeah there was some oh, uh, sorry in um hong kong there was some video where they had somebody uh showing how to do diy smokeless powder for making nine millimeter rounds yeah. um but uh that got taken down uh, <laughs> pretty quick yeah so we'll keep keep your eyes peeled, I guess, for what goes down Monday. This episode will be coming out on Monday. So obviously you in the future will know more about this Virginia situation than we do now. But I hope everybody, you know, you know what we should really be doing on MLK Day. Disarm the CIA. How about that for an MLK Day celebration? Oh, it's, it's Pete's birthday today. Oh, and happy birthday, Mayor Pete. Drop you out. You fucking rat faced little twerp. We hate you. We don't like you. <laughs> it's not, it's We're not, an anti-peep yeah. podcast. I don't even want to call him a, a rat-faced motherfucker because, as I mentioned previously, I side with the rodent liberation, Jerry's liberation <laughs> yeah, sure. army. That's true. It is and very insulting yeah, to Yeah, and the rodent proletariat. So, like, not even worth that. The more he is in the public eye, the more and more convinced I am that he is not a regular human like he was grown in a vat or he was found like on an asteroid floating through space or something and yeah. he's just been shaped into the image of a human he's there's something like he's he's almost like in the uncanny valley of human being so did you yeah. see the um the video with uh, new york times uh, when they were like in the editorial room or whatever he was drinking that cup of coffee is that the one well it, uh no not that one the one where he's like clearly drinking from a cup that's empty but just he there's just a wants video to, no, I, him, I think that was in in iowa oh okay there's uh, a no. video of him drinking out of a cup of coffee that it is obvious that there is nothing in that cup it's very bizarre <laughs> it's like, just like too light and he's just like it's just like he you just know. like puts it to his face and then puts it back down well, like, like you know when you're drinking out I of thirst, a coffee like cup like my fellow humans yeah <laughs> like, when you're drinking out of a coffee cup in that little hole like there's something that you do with your lips 
to like keep I don't know there's just it, it's just not you right pucker. you kind of have to like pucker and like you know maybe you lick your lips a little bit or something it's just very bizarre he's not drinking anything in that cup yeah so what was the New York Times? Oh, they're they're asking him like you know you don't seem as angry as your fellow millennials about like the way the world is going and the inequality in our country. In fact, you've worked with McKinsey, one of the groups, one of the companies that are fairly involved in all of the bad things that are happening in involved our country. In a bread fi- price fixing uh, con. Yeah, and they specifically mentioned the Canadian price fixing scheme. And uh, he's like, I didn't know anything about that. You Is know, that- I saw another video where it was like in the aught sometime. And he says, uh, part of my expertise is in global uh, food markets. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> well, he's just like, an expert in it and you didn't know anything about it. I mean, it's just, I mean, just like the fact that I don't know. There's just like, obviously the better answer is like, yeah, I, I don't like that McKinsey was a part of that, you know, or just say so, something. I don't yeah. know. Like yeah. you, you can say something where like, that's bad. And then also distance yourself from it. But he's like, that's not even, but he, you can clearly tell he doesn't think it's bad. Yeah. Yeah. But- right. He, ju- he just thinks that he's better than everyone else and that he is uh, supposed to be controlling the price of bread and everything else. And he's not sorry that he did that uh he's sorry that people found out and that they're complaining about it when clearly he you know they don't know what's you know for their own good yeah that's that's what he's mad about and he looks mad these flashes of anger are just like so horrifying well he he he, he does a curse word uh I, my computer's really slow right now but uh if you wanted to pull it up it, it, it's pretty funny been on the front lines of corporate downsizing. You've been on the front lines of corporate price fixing. You've been on the front whoa, lines whoa, whoa. That's, that's, of our that's, of our misadventures I'm sorry, of our misadventures in foreign policy. You've had direct experience of many of the things that make a lot of young people very angry about the way that this country uh, is operating right now. You don't seem to embody that anger. So the proposition that I've been on the front lines of corporate price fixing is just to get that out of the way. You worked um, for a company that was fixing bread prices. Uh, no. I worked for a consulting company that had a client that may have been involved in fixing, or was apparently in a scandal. I was not aware of the Canadian uh, bread pricing scandal until last night. But do you feel um, the anger that many young people feel about the state of this? Yeah, of course, because it destroyed my city. All right. So let's, can I get some wildflowers, you guys? Because I'm having a rough week, and let me tell you something. I mean, my frog tank is really lifting my spirits a great deal, but I'm going to need some good news. They're good. They're very happy, they seem, and healthy. Um, The males, when they're really, um, like, happy and healthy and feeling good, they sing. They do this little, like, singing thing because they're trying to get laid. And uh, the frogs have been doing a lot of that, which is very cute and sweet. So, they're good. Awesome. But better things in the world are happening than my aquatic little froggy friends, right? Bernie Sanders racking up them endorsements For real. left and right. Yeah, he got a... There's a SEIU local in New Hampshire that broke with SEIU National in 2016 and endorsed him. And they did that again. I think it's local 1985 or something. Mm. But mm-hmm. um, He's gotten a bunch of endorsements in Nevada, including most recently the Clark County Black Caucus. That was on Thursday. They endorsed Bernie Sanders. And you can see how hard they're going for California. Mm-hmm. You go to their endorsements page and the California list is like almost as big as the rest of the list combined. Yeah. Oh, wow. They're just like going real. They're gunning real hard for California. But the 
the most the, important one yeah truly yeah is uh the endorsement of the moderators of new urbanist memes for transit oriented teens or numtots numtots yeah <laughs> so uh, i've i've seen various reactions to this uh of um pleasant surprise uh, because a lot of them are very like PMC folks that like really love tax incentives and shit. Like, yeah. You know, uh, so they seem like a Warren crowd. So it's surprising that they, it's a pleasant surprise that they went for Bernie or at least the moderators did. And then there's also like in my, in the group chat that I'm on, uh, a few people said, you know, um, the fact that Facebook moderators are making presidential endorsements kind of makes me want to join ISIS. Uh, that's, that's a respectable reaction to this. I think that I, I, I see where you're coming from on that. But it's also kind of smart that Sanders actually went on or, you know, like his, his PR team went on NumTots and made a, a statement saying thank you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's a 200,000 person. It's a lot of people. Group. Cool. That's very active. Yeah, it's bigger than Ironweeds. Yeah, <laughs> a little bit. A little <laughs> bit it's bigger. a little bit bigger. I, yeah, I get it. Like that's a, it's a, it's worth at least saying thank you. Probably, Absolutely. you know. And then you have the Sunrise Movement. You know, mm-hmm. just like the entire yeah. Zoomers, they speak for all the Zoomers. Yep. Yeah, uh, Dream um, Defenders. And uh, they gave uh, you know Bernie the endorsement to which uh, Tom Steyer said, "Come on." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they vote the Sunrise Movement voted by 76% to back Sanders, which is not a small majority. I guess they just never heard of Tom Steyer and they just never he, gave him a shot. Tom Steyer, you know, he's telling us um, that he's the only um, candidate that's centering climate change on his platform. That's why he bought into all those fossil fuel companies so that he could then divest from them. Exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. You know, you got to You got to buy into them first and, and what then that, what, what that really means is it's not that he's the only one centering it it's that he's the only one with only one campaign platform <laughs> like, that's <laughs> what that actually translates to. so the last endorsement that i think is really wonderful and it should be coming out officially tonight though we we know it's already been basically um confirmed is barbara smith albany's own David, can you know you know quite a bit about Barbara Smith. Can you share some information about her with us? I, I'm a I'm a Barbara Smith fan. Yeah, you stand boy. you stand yeah. Barb really Sta- hard, real hard. Yeah, she um she was on the Albany Common Council, which is like their you know the city council in Albany. Uh, but that's far from her biggest achievement. Her biggest one is being part of the uh, Kambahi River Collective. In and she's also a Nobel Peace Prize nominee. That too, the CRC relationship from the the early 70s. I think I want to say. That's really cool because she basically invented the word identity politics. Mm-hmm. And so, like, the inventor of identity politics is a Bernie bro, which I find yeah. <laughs> pretty funny. And but, intersectionalism, right? Like, yeah. she was kind of on the uh, forefront of... Yeah. I mean, like, the two get used interchangeably now, but um, the the one the way that the Kambahi River Collective originally brought about identity politics was to say that, you know, you as a, as a black lesbians, you know, you go to the, the labor movement and it's all white dudes, and you go to the black liberation movement, and it's all black guys, and then you go to the women's movement, and it's all white ladies. And mm-hmm. it's like, where do you get, like, the politics where they all come together, right? And, and, and that was their critique, but it wasn't then like, okay, now let's all silo off into these separate containers, or it's not like, well, you can't now talk about these issues because you are not part of this identity. It was about like recognizing how identity forms groups, but then also for the purposes of merging them all together and having mass movements. So, um, for anyone that 
wants to know more about Barbara Smith, I actually recommend uh, a book that is probably the newest one that she's involved in that's called uh, Ain't Gonna Let Nobody Turn Me Around, 40 Years of Movement Building with Barbara Smith. And it's, um, it's a really cool book itself because it's like a bunch of former essays of hers and then also a lot of interviews with her, with other people. And it's a very conversational book that is very plain spoken and very clear about uh, wh- where identity politics like fits into the present moment. And uh, just uh, the, the, my favorite quote in that book, which I, I won't I won't quote directly, but she essentially says that, you know, the, uh, the left is constantly fighting this um, rhetorical sabotage that the right does where they'll take something like identity politics. And because they're angry that it gives us like platform for non-white men to speak, they'll say, oh, OK, that it, they want to actually just silence white men. Mm hmm. And then well-meaning, like, younger, usually, or just sort of, like, not well-connected leftists will pick that up, will pick up the sabotage version and say, yeah, white men shouldn't talk. Or, yeah. like, they should, you know, like, step back, wait your turn kind of thing. And she's like, no, that's not at all what it's not what that was supposed to be. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and so, you, that sabotaged version gets picked up and it competes in a, in a diametrical opposition to what she actually wanted to get out there so that's um it's really fascinating to to read that that work cool. interesting yeah. so big ups to barbara smith for endorsing uh the absolute boy bernie sanders yep and to all the other folks out there with you know thirty thousand twitter followers who have been endorsing them as if that means anything to anybody but you know what you do you keep them coming hey it's a uh influence economy and if that uh economy is working uh in a direction for the working class then i'm all for it yeah. so be it yeah so you are about to hear, should you so choose, uh, you're about to hear chapter two of The Conquest of Bread by Peter Kropotkin. Um, I found this chapter to be more of a fun read, and I hope that translates to more of a fun listen. There's a little less of 6,000 bushels of weed on a 20-acre <laughs> plot and, like, the population increase going up 87, you know. So, like, there's, it's more, um, a bit more narrative and less kind of dense than that. And one thing that I really like about this chapter, I guess I should say, so this is an anarchist book. I personally am not an anarchist uh, you know, I don't know if you guys, Chris, I think you identify a bit more with the anarchist label than either of us does. But yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in the future to tease out that discourse in terms of the identities or the uh, tendencies that mm-hmm. um, we, we sort of identify with. Um, and yeah, I would say I'm an anarchist because um, I believe that hierarchy uh, that's artificially created uh, for the purposes of organization is fundamentally unjust. And we basically need to figure out how to take care of one another in as egalitarian, non-hierarchical way if possible. That's sort of like a political, philosophical position, but, like, I vote. I'm not, like, you know, saying that, like, all uses of state power are inherently, um, you know, uh, horrible and should be, you know, uh, avoided at all costs. It's more like... Yeah, I think that egalitarian stance is also compatible with certain notions of, you know, communism, mm -hmm. at least in its, you know, full communism realization. Maybe we'll do an episode where we get into some of that more. But but I do, um, with regards to the Kropotkin, with regards to Conquest of Bread, uh, while I don't share all all of, or maybe even a lot of his political philosophies. So many of his ideas are really useful to think with. And I think that this chapter is really um, good evidence of that. He goes into some of like the front, the failures of the French revolutions. And so I, I, yeah, I really hope that you guys enjoy it. Um, 
there's some difficult to pronounce words in it. If and like I said, if I got them wrong, don't at me. And uh, I mentioned this on the last episode, and I'll probably mention it in future episodes. But eventually, we will compile all of these chapters into an audiobook that you'll be able to get on our Patreon account. So look forward to that. Yeah, and uh, thanks to everybody who has been supporting us on Patreon. Um, you, the, your donations are literally enabling this type of content to be produced. Um, yeah. And uh, very much appreciated. You are enablers in the best way. Thank you for enabling me. Um, so we are currently at 19 patrons. And uh, so we want to get to 25. And we want to do it by the end of the month. So the next six patrons, whoever gets us to 25, so 2021, 20, 23, 45, is going to get access to the very first Ironweeds ever recorded, never before heard by any ears other than ours um it's it's actually so i've been listening to it because i wanted to listen to it before i decided to send this to anybody it's actually pretty good you guys sound quality is not like as as great as it is now but the banter it's there you know the magic was there from the very beginning yeah we actually decided it was too good to put out uh <laughs> so that's why you're gonna end up with it but uh, we talk about uh copaganda which is something i was into at the time um, and, and, you know, a few other things. So yeah, if you want to hear that, become a patron for as little as $1 a month. And I will, uh, if you sign up, I'll get in touch with you, get an email from you and send you a copy of the MP3 of that episode. Um, and thank you so much. You can find us on Twitter. Ironweeds pod. You can find us on Instagram. Ironweeds pod. Send us an email at ironweedspod at gmail.com. <laughs> <laughs> Patreon.com slash ironweeds. If you want to give us one time donation, go to buymeacoffee.com slash ironweeds. And thank you so very much. Bye bye. Bye bye. Let's conquer this bread. Conquer it. Peace. Chapter two Well being for all. Well being for all is not a dream, it is possible, realizable owing to all that our ancestors have done to increase our powers of production. We know, indeed, that the producers, although they constitute hardly one-third of the inhabitants of civilized countries, even now produce such quantities of goods that a certain degree of comfort could be brought to every hearth. We know further that if all those who squander today the fruits of others' toil were forced to employ their leisure in useful work, our wealth would increase in proportion to the number of producers and more. Finally, we know that contrary to the theory enunciated by Malthus, that oracle of middle-class economics, the productive powers of the human race increase at a much more rapid ratio than its powers of reproduction. The more thickly men are crowded on the soil, the more rapid is the growth of their wealth-creating power. Thus, although the population of England has only increased from 1844 to 1890 by 62%, its production has grown, to say the least, at double that rate, to wit, by 130%. In France, where the population has grown more slowly, the increase in production is nevertheless very rapid. Notwithstanding the crises through which agriculture is frequently passing, notwithstanding state interference, the blood tax, conscription, and speculative commerce and finance, the production of wheat in France has increased fourfold and industrial production more than tenfold in the course of the last 80 years. In the United States, the progress is still more striking. In spite of immigration, or rather precisely because of the influx of surplus European labor, the United States have multiplied their wealth tenfold. 
However, these figures give yet a very faint idea of what our wealth might become under better conditions. For alongside of the rapid development of our wealth-producing powers, we have an overwhelming increase in the ranks of the idlers and middlemen. Instead of capital gradually concentrating itself in a few hands, so that it would only be necessary for the community to dispossess a few millionaires and enter upon its lawful heritage, instead of this socialist forecast proving true, the exact reverse is coming to pass. The swarm of parasites is ever increasing. In France, there are not ten actual producers to every thirty inhabitants. The whole agricultural wealth of the country is the work of less than seven millions of men, and in the two great industries, mining and the textile trade, you'll find that the workers number less than two and a half million. But the exploiters of labor, how many are they? In England, exclusive of Scotland and Ireland, only one million workers, men, women, and children, are employed in all the textile trades. Rather more than half a million work the mines, rather less than half a million till the ground, and the statisticians have to exaggerate all the figures in order to establish a maximum of 8 million producers to 26 million inhabitants. Strictly speaking, the creators of the goods exported from Britain to all the ends of the earth comprise only from 6 to 7 million workers. And what is the sum of the shareholders and middlemen who levy the first fruits of labor from far and near and heap up unearned gains by thrusting themselves between the producer and the consumer, paying the former not a fifth, nay, not a twentieth, of the price they exact from the latter. Nor is this all. Those who withhold capital constantly reduce the output by restraining production. We need not speak of the cartloads of oysters thrown into the sea to prevent a dainty, hitherto reserved for the rich, from becoming a food for the people. We need not speak of the thousand and one luxuries, stuffs, foods, etc., etc., treated after the same fashion as the oysters. It is enough to remember the way in which the production of the most necessary things is limited. Legions of miners are ready and willing to dig out coal every day and send it to those who are shivering with cold. But, too often, a third, or even two-thirds, of their number are forbidden to work more than three days a week, because, forsooth, the price of coal must be kept up. Thousands of weavers are forbidden to work the looms, though their wives and children go in rags, and though three-quarters of the population of Europe have no clothing worthy the name. Hundreds of blast furnaces, thousands of factories, periodically stand idle, others only work half-time. And in every civilized nation there is a permanent population of about two million individuals who ask only for work, but to whom work is denied. How gladly would these millions of men set to work to reclaim wastelands, or to transform ill-cultivated land into fertile fields, rich in harvests. A year of well-directed toil would suffice to multiply fivefold the production of dry lands in the south of France, which now yield only about eight bushels of wheat per acre. But these men, who would be happy to become hardy pioneers in so many branches of wealth-producing activity, must stay their hands because the owners of the soil, the mines, and the factories, prefer to invest their capital stolen in the first place from the community, in Turkish or Egyptian bonds, or in Patagonian gold mines, and so make Egyptian fellas, Italian exiles, and Chinese coolies their wage slaves. So much for the direct and deliberate limitation of production. But there is also a limitation indirect and not of set purpose, 
which consists in spending human toil on objects absolutely useless or destined only to satisfy the dull vanity of the rich. It is impossible to reckon in figures the extent to which wealth is restricted indirectly, the extent to which energy is squandered, that might have served to produce and, above all, to prepare the machinery necessary to production. It is enough to cite the immense sums spent by Europe in armaments for the sole purpose of acquiring control of the markets and so forcing her own commercial standards on neighboring territories and making exploitation easier at home. The millions paid every year to officials of all sorts, whose function is to maintain the rights of minorities, the right, that is, of a few rich men, to manipulate the economic activities of the nation. The millions spent on judges, prisons, policemen, and all the paraphernalia of so-called justice, spent to no purpose, because we know that every alleviation, however slight, of the wretchedness of our great cities is followed by a very considerable diminution of crime. Lastly, the millions spent on propagating pernicious doctrines by means of the press and news cooked in the interest of this or that party, of this politician or of that company of exploiters. But over and above this, we must take into account all the labor that goes to sheer waste in keeping up the stables, the kennels, and the retinue of the rich, for instance, in pandering to the caprices of society and to the depraved tastes of the fashionable mob, in forcing the consumer on the one hand to buy what he does not need, or foisting an inferior article upon him by means of puffery, and in producing on the other hand wares which are absolutely injurious, but profitable to the manufacturer. What is squandered in this manner would be enough to double our real wealth, or so to plenish our mills and factories with machinery that they would soon flood the shops with all that is now lacking to two-thirds of the nation. Under our present system, a full quarter of the producers in every nation are forced to be idle for three or four months in the year, and the labor of another quarter, if not the half, has no better results than the amusement of the rich or the exploitation of the public. Thus, if we consider on the one hand the rapidity with which civilized nations augment their powers of production, and on the other hand the limits set to that production, be it directly or indirectly, by existing conditions, one cannot but conclude that an economic system a trifle more enlightened would permit them to heap up in a few years so many useful products that they would be constrained to cry, Enough! We have enough coal and bread and raiment. Let us rest and consider how best to use our powers, how best to employ our leisure. No, plenty for all is not a dream, though it was a dream indeed in those old days when man, for all his pains, could hardly win a bushel of wheat from an acre of land, and had to fashion by hand all the implements he used in agriculture and industry. Now it is no longer a dream, because man has invented a motor which, with a little iron and a few pounds of coal, gives him mastery of a creature strong and docile as a horse, and capable of setting the most complicated machinery in motion. But, if plenty for all is to become a reality, this immense capital, cities, houses, pastures, arable lands, factories, highways, education, must cease to be regarded as private property, for the monopolist to dispose of at his pleasure. This rich endowment, painfully won, builded, fashioned, or invented by our ancestors, must become common property, so that the collective interests of men may gain from it the greatest good for all. There must be expropriation. The well-being of all, the end. Expropriation, the means.
Expropriation. Such, then, is the problem which history has put before the men of the 20th century. The return to communism and all that ministers to the well-being of man. But this problem cannot be solved by means of legislation. No one imagines that. The poor, no less than the rich, understand that neither the existing governments nor any which might arise out of possible political changes would be capable of finding a solution. We feel the necessity of a social revolution. Rich and poor alike recognize that this revolution is imminent, that it may break out in a very few years. A great change in thought has been accomplished during the last half of the 19th century, but suppressed, as it was, by the propertied classes and denied its natural development, this new spirit must break now its bonds by violence and realize itself in a revolution. Whence comes the revolution, and how will it announce its coming? None can answer these questions. The future is hidden. But those who watch and think do not misinterpret the signs. Workers and exploiters, revolutionists and conservatives, thinkers and men of action, all feel that the revolution is at our doors. Well, what are we to do when the thunderbolt has fallen? We have all been studying the dramatic side of revolution so much, and the practical work of revolution so little, that we are apt to see only the stage effects, so to speak, of these great movements. The fight of the first days, the barricades. But this fight, this first skirmish, is soon ended, and it is only after the overthrow of the old constitution that the real work of revolution can be said to begin. Effet and powerless, attacked on all sides, the old rulers are soon swept away by the breath of insurrection. In a few days, the middle-class monarchy of 1848 was no more, and while Louis-Philippe was making good his escape in a cab, Paris had already forgotten her citizen king. The government of Thiers disappeared on the 18th of March, 1871, in a few hours, leaving Paris mistress of her destinies. Yet 1848 and 1871 were only insurrections. Before a popular revolution, the masters of the old order disappear with surprising rapidity. Its upholders fly the country to plot in safety elsewhere and to devise measures for their return. The former government having disappeared, the army, hesitating before the tide of popular opinion, no longer obeys its commanders, who have also prudently decamped. The troops stand by without interfering or join the rebels. The police, standing at ease, are uncertain whether to belabor the crowd or to cry, Long live the commune! while some retire to their quarters to await the pleasure of the new government. Wealthy citizens pack their trunks and betake themselves to places of safety. The people remain. This is how a revolution is ushered in. In several large towns, the commune is proclaimed. In the streets wander thousands of men, who in the evening crowd into improvised clubs asking, What shall we do? And ardently discuss public affairs, in which all take an interest. Those who yesterday were most indifferent are perhaps the most zealous. Everywhere there is plenty of goodwill and a keen desire to make victory certain. It is a time of supreme devotion. The people are ready to go forward. All this is splendid, sublime, but still, it is not a revolution. Nay, it is only now that the work of the revolutionist begins. Doubtless, the thirst for vengeance will be satisfied. The Watrins and the Tomases will pay the penalty of their unpopularity. 
But that is only an incident of the struggle, and not a revolution. Socialist politicians, radicals, neglected geniuses of journalism, stump orators, middle-class citizens, and workmen hurry to the town hall to the government offices and take possession of the vacant seats. Some rejoice their hearts with galoon, admire themselves in ministerial mirrors, and study to give orders with an air of importance appropriate to their new position. They must have a red sash, an embroidered cap, and magisterial gestures to impress their comrades of the office or the workshop. Others bury themselves in official papers, trying, with the best of wills, to make head or tail of them. They indict laws and issue high-flown worded decrees that nobody takes the trouble to carry out, because the revolution has come. To give themselves an authority which is lacking, they seek the sanction of old forms of government. They take the names of provisional government, committee of public safety, mayor, governor of the town hall, commissioner of the public wheel, and whatnot. Elected or acclaimed, they assemble in boards or in communal councils. These bodies include men of ten or twenty different schools, which, if not exactly private chapels, are at least so many sects which represent as many ways of regarding the scope, the bearing, and the goal of the revolution. Possibilists, collectivists, radicals, Jacobins, Blancists are thrust together and waste time in wordy warfare. Honest men come into contact with ambitious ones, whose only dream is power and who spurn the crowd whence they sprung. Coming together with diametrically opposed views, they are forced to form arbitrary alliances in order to create majorities that can but last a day. Wrangling, calling each other reactionaries, authoritarians, and rascals, incapable of coming to an understanding on any serious measure, dragged into discussions about trifles, producing nothing better than bombastic proclamations, yet taking themselves seriously, unwitting that the real strength of the movement is in the streets. All this may please those who like the theater, but it is not revolution. Nothing yet has been accomplished. Meanwhile, the people suffer. The factories are idle, the workshops closed, industry is at a standstill. The worker does not even earn the meager wage which was his before. Food goes up in price. With that heroic devotion which has always characterized them, and which in great crises reaches the sublime, the people wait patiently. We place these three months of want at the service of the Republic, they said in 1848, while their representatives and the gentlemen of the new government, down to the meanest jack-in-office, received their salary regularly. The people suffer. With the childlike faith, with the good humor of the masses who believe in their leaders, they think that yonder, in the House, in the Town Hall, in the Committee of Public Safety, their welfare is being considered. But yonder, they are discussing everything under the sun except the welfare of the people. In 1793, while famine ravaged France and crippled the revolution, whilst the people were reduced to the depths of misery, whilst the Champs-Élysées were lined with luxurious carriages where women displayed their jewels and splendor, Robespierre was urging the Jacobins to discuss his treatise on the English Constitution. While the worker was suffering in 1848 from the general stoppage of trade, the provisional government and the House were wrangling over military pensions and prison labor, without troubling how the people were to live during the crisis. And could one cast a reproach at the Paris Commune, which was born beneath the Prussian cannon and lasted only 70 days, 
it would be for the same error, this failure to understand that the revolution could not triumph unless those who fought on its side were fed, that on 15 pence a day a man cannot fight on the ramparts and at the same time support a family. The people suffer and say, how to find the way out of these difficulties? It seems to us that there is only one answer to this question. We must recognize and loudly proclaim that everyone, whatever his grade in the old society, whether strong or weak, capable or incapable, has, before everything, the right to live, and that society is bound to share amongst all, without exception, the means of existence at its disposal. We must acknowledge this and proclaim it aloud and act up to it. It must be so contrived that from the first day of the revolution the worker shall know that a new era is opening before him, that henceforward none need crouch under the bridges with palaces hard by, none need fast in the midst of food, none need perish with cold near shops full of furs, that all is for all, in practice as well as in theory, and that at last, for the first time in history, a revolution has been accomplished which considers the needs of the people before schooling them in their duties. This cannot be brought about by acts of parliament, but only by taking immediate and effective possession of all that is necessary to ensure the well-being of all. This is the only really scientific way of going to work, and the only way to be understood and desired by the mass of the people. We must take possession in the name of the people, of the granaries, the shops full of clothing, and the dwelling houses. Nothing must be wasted. We must organize without delay to feed the hungry, to satisfy all wants, to meet all needs, to produce, not for the special benefit of this one or that one, but to ensure that society as a whole will live and grow. Enough of ambiguous words like the right to work, with which the people were misled in 1848, and which are still used to mislead them. Let us have the courage to recognize that well-being for all, henceforward possible, must be realized. When the workers claimed the right to work in 1848, national and municipal workshops were organized and workmen were sent to drudge there at a rate of one shilling eight pence a day. When they asked that labor should be organized, the reply was, Patience, friends. The government will see to it. Meantime, here is your one shilling eight pence. Rest now, brave toiler, after your lifelong struggle for food. Meantime, the cannons were trained, the reserves called out, and the workers themselves disorganized by the many methods well known to the middle classes, till one fine day they were told to go and colonize Africa or be shot down. Very different will be the result if the workers claim the right to well-being. In claiming that right, they claim the right to possess the wealth of the community, to take the houses to dwell in, according to the needs of each family, to seize the stores of food and learn the meaning of plenty after having known famine too well. They proclaim their right to all wealth, fruit of the labor of past and present generations, and learn by its means to enjoy those higher pleasures of art and science, too long monopolized by the middle classes. And while asserting their right to live in comfort, they assert, what is still more important, their right to decide for themselves what this comfort shall be, what must be produced to ensure it, and what discarded as no longer of value. The right to well-being means the possibility of living like human beings and of bringing up children to be members of a society better than ours, whilst the right to work only means the right to always be a wage slave, a drudge, ruled over and exploited by the middle class of the future. 
The right to well-being is the social revolution. The right to work means nothing but the treadmill of commercialism. It is high time for the worker to assert his right to the common inheritance and to enter into possession.